us if we went anywhere else. So, I grew up in church. I was around church a, a whole, whole lot. And I knew what the church answers were. I knew for the most part, if someone asked you a question in a Sunday school class or a Wednesday night Bible study, if you threw out something that sounded like Jesus, there's a good chance that you would be correct. And they may give you some Laffy Taffy. Uh, If Jesus was not the specific answer, you could throw out things like read your Bible and pray. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and I want you to answer these in sincerity in your heart. Maybe write down your answer. Thinking through this, not based on everything that you may be familiar with in regard to Christian teaching, but I want you to think for just a moment as to how life treats you. And sometimes I want you to think through how some things make you feel. I'm going to throw out a blank. God loves me because of blank. God loves me because of blank. And the second question I would ask you to consider, or the second blank I would ask you to fill in, is God does not love me because of blank. God does not love me because of blank. When we think through these two blanks, for those of us who are familiar with the, the, the teaching of Christianity, we know that the reason that God loves us is because of the cross of Jesus. However, there are times for us, for whatever reason, where we in our own hearts wanting to stack thing, one thing after the other, after the other on top of itself, try to convince ourselves that God may find pleasure in us because of what we have done, because of how we are doing, because of why we are doing it. God loves me because of blank. God does not love me because of blank. As Paul continues his letter here in Philippians chapter 3, he's letting the church at Philippi know exactly why it is that Jesus loves them, why it is that God cares for them, how it is that God has cared for them. And he begins to really contradict the idea that each of us, as people who were in this century, the idea that we would answer these questions subconsciously with things that are incorrect. God loves me because I'm a good parent. God loves me because I show up here on Sunday mornings. God loves me because of blank. And in those moments when we fail at those things, we would think that God does not love us. There's this idea that runs in us sometimes, this weird, weird tension. We have convinced ourselves of things that are untrue. We have convinced ourselves very much what the Judaizers that Paul is referencing in this passage have convinced themselves of. That the pleasure of God comes because of things that they have done. And I would hope that as we arrive in this text today, we would see that Paul is teaching us things about why it is that God finds pleasure in his people. And we see that we want to make sure that we don't put the cart before the horse because what would a cart in front of a horse ever do for anyone? Uh, Philippians chapter 3, if you've got your Bibles, I would love for you to read along. If you, have, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a chair somewhere around you. Feel free to open that. It reads this. In addition, my, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evildoers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. 
For we are the circumcision. We are the one spirit of God. We boast in Christ Jesus and we do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I've got reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, well, I've got more. See, I was circumcised on the eighth day, uh, the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Regarding the law, I was a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, I persecuted the church. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, I was blameless. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I consider them as dung, so that I may gain Christ, and I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. As Paul continues to elaborate for us to the church at Philippi, he wants them to see that the Messiah is and what the Messiah does. So for us to make sure that we don't put the cart in front of the horse, let me give you a little bit of a breakdown of today's passage. In the large first portion of it, the first nine verses, we see this. We see who Jesus is and how Paul's life lines up with that. Who is this Jesus? Well, Paul tells us that Jesus, two things, if you're a note taker, feel free to write these down. That Jesus is the origin of our joy and that Jesus is the object of our joy. Jesus, again, is the origin of our joy, and he is the object of our joy. Secondly, we see toward the end what it is that Jesus offers those of us who are in him. What it is that Jesus offers, and that is that he provides opportunity for you and for me to display our joy. Jesus provides opportunity for us to display our joy through suffering with a resurrection in mind. Again, in verse 1, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Now, we as a church, we discuss the word rejoice. Let's be clear as to what's taking place there. It is a word that starts with a re, which means whatever takes place next, we're going to do over and over and over. So when Paul says that you are to rejoice, he says this to us, to the church at Philippi. You are to have joy over and over and over and over and over and just when you think you're through you're to have joy yet again this continual cycle of having joy in the Lord to write to you again about this is no trouble for me and it is a safeguard for you Paul as he deals with the church at Philippi is pointing out as they are facing various persecutions various difficulties because of the area in which they live that was in opposition to the message of Jesus he says if your joy is in the Lord and not your circumstance that is a safeguard for you if you are to find your joy here if you are to realize that God has given you joy in the Lord here, it will help you in the face of your difficulty, in the face of your situation, in the face of your hardship, to know who you are. Because again, if you do not do this, we go toward those blanks where we think that God loves us because of blank, what we have done. 
Why in the world would I ever be persecuted if I'm attempting to follow Jesus? Why in the world would I ever suffer or go through sickness if I'm attempting to follow Jesus? The safeguard is that our joy is in the Lord. And then uh, the converse of that is that we would believe that God does not love us because of blank. Paul says the safeguard for the believer is this joy in this Lord, in the Lord, this deep understanding of who God is, this sense of who God is. It's not just a circumstantial happiness. It's a joy that rests on us. It's a joy that resonates through us. Paul says that we as followers of Jesus are to find our joy in the Lord over and over and over. And as he says this to the church at Philippi, and by extension to the church at 1027 Dixie Drive, that extends into our hearts, into our situation, into our circumstance. And Paul says to us, in the same vein, what he says to them. Watch out for those who are against you. Here's what he says. Watch out for the dogs. Now, we, uh, culturally, have a misunderstanding of dogs because we think dogs are pets so much so that I placed a message on social media on Friday asking you to send me pictures of your dogs and I have pictures of the various dogs from Grace Bible Church not all of them but I want to show you some of these and maybe just maybe if you're familiar with our church you can match the dog with its owner this is a very fancy dog that's at one of our homes as you can see very sophisticated does anyone know who this dog belongs to? Yes, this dog belongs to the Mannings. Now, not Jared and Sarah, Jared's mom and dad, because Jared and Sarah, their dogs are less fancy. Uh, the, the, next, the next dog is, who does this dog belong to? Now, it's a pool dog, as you can see. This dog belongs to the Keir family, and you can see he's just elated that it's swimming season. The next dog, uh, these dogs belong to, uh, you may not know Lauren Sandler, but she's one of our members. She has these two dogs, and they are obviously posing for this photo. But I have another one. This dog, <laughs> this is my favorite dog name. Uh, th this dog belongs to the Corns. Uh, Steve, Miranda, Steve's one of our elders. The dog's name is Pup. They named this, this dog Pupcorn, and I think it's the best. This dog belongs to uh, uh, Twain Kim Pigott. It's in black and white. They like to throw it back. These dogs belong to two of our newer attenders, the Cravies. I've got a last dog here too, I think. This is a Chihuahua, I think. And it belongs to Leanne and Harvey Scott. Is that your dog or her dog, Harvey? Oh, great. Okay. So... Now, some of you guys text me pictures, and I apologize. And then some of you guys sent me pictures of your cats. And I want you to know, I'm saving those for another series I call Allergies and Supernatural Things Like Demons. Uh, so, just work through it. In the Bible, dogs aren't pets. Uh, you don't have a dog because... Again, we have had the conversation regularly that when we're talking about eating, we're not talking about if we're talking about when and what. In a world where you eat and where, where you're not sure where your next meal is coming from, you don't want to have a dog following after you. Dogs were cockroaches. David speaks of dogs in Psalms 22, and he, he uses this language. He talks about an evil gang that surrounded him, and then he said, like a pack of dogs, they close in on me. 
Dogs are rats in the Bible. Dogs are terrible things that would distract you, that would take away from you. And Paul, as he writes to the church at Philippi, is talking about a group of people who are trying to take joy from those who belong to Jesus, who are part of what Luke refers to as the way. They were evildoers. They were mutilators of the flesh. This is coming from this group, these Judaizers, who believe that if you were a Gentile convert to Christianity, that you needed to be circumcised. And as they're having this conversation, Paul is saying to them, no, the entire understanding of what it means to belong to God rests solely in the person of Jesus. We don't place our understanding as to what it means to be a person who belongs to God on circumcision. We place it on Christ Jesus. And Paul sees these Judaizers who are telling these Gentile converts that they need to make sure that they are circumcised. He says, no, you're so focused on this outward sign that you miss the actual inward change. To be a follower of Jesus is an inward change. Paul uses the word mutilate to point out that this circumcision has no spiritual significance. The circumcision, the mutilation of the flesh, has no spiritual significance. So for us in 2021, as we're having this very unique conversation, I would love for us to think through what are the things that we attempt to say have to be done for someone to be functioning as a Christian. And this kind of rests on each of us personally because we've got all these varying convictions that run into our lives, that invade our homes, that begin to try to push and pull from what it means to rejoice in the Lord over and over and over. What are the things taking place in you right now that are telling you that you have no value before the Lord? Paul is saying to this church as they're attempting to... Consider these Judaizers. Don't get caught in that. Safeguard yourself with a joy that is in the Lord. <coughs> Paul says this. <coughs> he didn't cough. Paul says this. For we are the circumcision. The ones who worship by the Spirit of God. We are the ones who boast in Christ Jesus. And we do not put our confidence in the flesh. Paul is pointing out to this church, if all of our identity is what takes place in this life, it will not last. If you have the greatest bundle of good deeds, it will not last. Paul is using this idea of the Christian people being the circumcision to say this to all of us who are in Jesus. This is an actual symbol in the Old Testament of God bringing someone into his people. The follower of Christ Jesus, the one who has trusted in Jesus who is the way, the one who knows the power of his crucifixion and the power of his resurrection as a result. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We are safeguarded as we safeguard ourselves. Confidence in the flesh is boasting in the flesh. It's the opposite of, bo uh, of shame. We, we boast that Jesus saved us and we boast that, that He will save us from eternal judgment. We boast in a way that gives us an inner confidence to preach the good news of Jesus to those that we interact with, to those that we know. And that doesn't mean that you get a fancy uh, 
stage and a pulpit. It means that we are good news people declaring the good news of Jesus in the face of very bad news that people hear regularly. That we are followers of Jesus who would say that the hope of the resurrection is something that carries into every crevice and every corner of the world. And Jesus is calling people to himself. Calling people from death to life. Jesus says these things. Paul continues, and he's referencing almost what we see in Jeremiah chapter 9, where it says this, Behold, the, days is, the day is coming, declares the Lord, while well, I will punish all of those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, letting us know that this idea of circumcision was always a means to an end, directing toward what would really take place in Jesus. For those who would say that they are in Christ Jesus based on their works, Paul says that is a damnable offense. In Christ, God has started a new work, not just to pierce our bodies, but God has done something better because He has cut into our hearts. He has removed things from inside the person who was opposed to Him, and He has given you a new heart. But when we hear this, we immediately think, what is Paul talking about? He's, when we hear this, we immediately begin to leverage our own worth before God. And we've got two major players in the New Testament apart from our Lord Jesus. You have Peter, you have Paul. Paul wrote the book of the New Testament. And when we look at the life of Paul, it is one that can be a little bit overwhelming. Peter's the kind of guy you would have pizza with. Toward the end of his life, he would have pizza with you that was not kosher. Peter is a very important figure, but Paul scares us. We relate to Peter more, but Paul is overwhelming. Paul is overwhelming because of the confidence that he could have in the flesh. Although, he says in verse 4, I have no reason for confidence in the flesh. <coughs> Pardon. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, I was blameless. So here's the thing that Paul is saying. I was born good. He was circumcised according to every Jewish tradition. God had appointed that you would be circumcised on the eighth day. That did not always happen with the Jewish people. Paul is clear to say, I did it correct. My family made sure that took place on the correct time. I was a pure-blooded Israelite. I was a Benjamite. The only son of Jacob born in Israel is who Benjamin is. He got the land of Jericho and he got the land of Jerusalem, which is incredibly important to the Jewish people. I was a Hebrew. I still, spoke, I still spoke Hebrew when everybody around me spoke Greek and Aramaic. He studied under Gamaliel. I don't know who your favorite teacher, preacher, pastor, whatever is, but that's who Gamaliel was for the Jewish people. He studied under the highest ranking Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. The most well-respected group in their world. There were other sects, but everyone else looked to the Pharisees as the ones who were their religious leaders. They did not understand them the way that we do. Paul says, I was so good. I was good in every single way. I was so really good. But not only was I good, when I got to going, when I grew up and I was given direction, I was good at being good. He committed himself to being a Pharisee with all the hard work that was involved in that. When Paul continued, he hated anything that branched away from Jewish tradition of the church. He was a Darth Vader level persecutor of the church in the Bible. Marching into places and persecuting Christians. 
He was blameless. 613 laws, Paul tells us that he kept every single one of them. If there was anyone who should be liked for what they did, it was Paul. And then Paul says, but that's not enough. Everything that was gained to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ Jesus. Why in the world would Paul list these things off for the sake of letting people know who he was? Most of the early church was not what Paul was. The early church was made up of slaves. It was made up of the poor. It was made up of women and children because men had left them behind. The early church was a hodgepodge of Gentiles and Jews, of some who were citizens and some who were not, of some who were on equal standing, who had equal footing and equal status in their circles, and some who did not. This group of people met together in Philippi to be the church. And they came from all of their different backgrounds and all of their different perspectives. And they had all of their different reasons to misunderstand the blanks that we talked about earlier. And they were expected to come together and to live a life that contradicted society and its expectations. The idea of preaching Jesus at this point in time was viewed as, as disorderly and disruptive. And Paul is letting these people know that they are unified in what they give up for the sake of Jesus. People from varying backgrounds and varying traditions coming together were inevitably giving things up for the sake of this community. And Paul is saying, as someone who is foundational to your formation, as the leader who planted this church, I want you to understand how important and how significant it would be that you would not find your identity in what you were, but in whose you are. In discussing his history, his history and his accomplishments, he's reminding them that he is deeply rooted in a religious and ethnic community, yet he is also telling them that I'm walking away from all of that because of this person of Jesus who I met. He's, he's reminding them of how much he has lost, but how much more he has gained. Verse 8, more than that, I've considered everything to be lost in a view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Because of Him, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I consider all of those things. Let's not miss this, the clarity of it. I'm considering the loss of all of those things as dung. So that I may gain Christ. I have all of these things that I stack up and that I could stack up and that you would stack up that I valued as worthy, that I saw as my righteousness. But now I want to avoid the idea of finding my identity in any of those things. Because my identity is in the person of Jesus. Avoiding dung. What, what a word here. Many of our Bibles use the word rubbish. The word dung is really what it's getting at. A birthday party yesterday for a five-year-old. I noticed at one point, uh, I was the oldest dad there. And the reason that this stood out to me, because I was the only one not carrying a baby around. So I just let them do the thing. 
But as I'm standing out in the field and they're eating their birthday cake and all this, there's a... Someone is not picked up after their dog properly. So everyone just tried to avoid it. Everyone stepped over it. Everyone walked around it. Paul is saying about his own righteousness. The idea of finding his value in that, I'm gonna, I need to walk around that because that's wrong. I need to miss that. I need to make sure that I don't, get ste- I don't step in that again. I need to make sure that I don't smell of that. I need to make sure that who I am clearly communicates Jesus, His crucifixion, His resurrection. And if I am going to get caught up in my own righteousness again, that's dung. I don't need to forget that. Be found in Him. God does not save us because we obey the law. I think if we're not careful in 2021, we can really lose ourselves in finding things that we do that we should credit to ourselves as righteousness. What are you in your own life crediting to yourself as righteousness right now that is not Jesus? What's scary is that we subversively label things under the guise of Jesus. We have decided that Jesus should be found in these various things. And our identity, if we're not careful, becomes those things. We are saved by Jesus. Jesus alone. Jesus completely. The whole hope of Christianity is in Jesus. Do we have enough credit on our own? No. Absolutely not. Because your righteousness doesn't stack up high enough. All of my life, I've been crediting these things to my account, is what Paul says. My entire life, I've been finding this list in verses 3 through 6. And I've been saying that I'm okay before God, before, before God because of these things. And now I see that that is absolutely incorrect. How often do we find our identity in the fact that we're good people? That we are morally upright? That we are different than our neighbor in that we show up at a building on a Sunday. Our identity as followers of Jesus is found wholly in Jesus. Paul is telling us what I hope that we would not lose sight of. If all of my behavior is in line and there is no Jesus, that I am still in debt to him. Jesus is the center of this. He's the source of our joy. But he offers something. He provides opportunity for you and for me to display our joy. Verse 10 and 11. My goal is to know him, just so we're clear, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the resurrection is of first importance. But before we could ever know the power of the resurrection, for those of us who are in Jesus, we know the joy that God has given us in Jesus, we have to unite with Him in suffering. There is something that takes place there. This concept is thread through much of the Old Testament. Joseph is thrown into a pit and into a prison before he is exalted into a place of royalty. Israel is exiled, but the exile leads to restoration. For you and for me, are we sharing in the suffering of Jesus? 
Are we seeing the idea of what it means for us to suffer for Christ's sake? We see in scriptures that Jesus took the very nature of a servant, becoming like him in death, Paul says. So when Jesus did this, he showed things to us. He showed us what mercy looked like. For those of us who would share in his suffering, we should look at our own account and ask ourselves, am I really merciful? For those of us who are calling ourselves people who follow Jesus and who have experienced the God who so loved the world, would you ask, are you loving? For those of us who would look and we would see the sacrifice of Jesus as the place where we meet with God, I would ask, are we sacrificial? The message of Jesus resonating over and over, sharing with him in suffering so that we can know this power of his resurrection. What does it mean to know the resurrection of Jesus? What does it mean for me to understand full-blown, gospel-centered, God-saturated resurrection? I've not swam this year. I don't know if you've swam at your house. I know that it turns summer here in January. Then we had that freeze and then it turned summer again on the last week of February. The first time for me swimming every year is always the most difficult. Think about it. You go to the water. There's this weird little breeze on the water. You put your foot in the water. And then I go sit down and eat a cheeseburger. And then I come back to the water. You go sit down again over and over. This thing repeats itself until I eventually immerse myself in the water. It's even worse when it's the, the ocean because nothing can really control the, the temperature there. It is what it is. This power of the resurrection we see in this passage, knowing that. We as followers of Jesus come to Jesus and we immerse ourselves in Him. But you go deeper and deeper into the power of His resurrection knowing who this Jesus is, swimming in the grace of God, seeing that it extends fully and wholly and completely so that you can be someone who completely knows this Jesus. Are you immersing yourself in the truth of who Jesus is? Becoming like Him in suffering, becoming, knowing His resurrection, immersing your life for the sake of Jesus into your world because you would see that He always brings us to the other side as people who know Him. Like Joseph, who was in the pit and who was exalted. Like Israel, like Moses, like David. Over and over, stories of people who've been placed on the outskirts, who've been exalted to high places. Knowing the resurrection means we immerse ourselves in the message of Jesus. Are we doing that? Are, are we finding our hope and satisfaction there? Here's what I would invite us to do this morning. Just bow our heads. And think on this Jesus for just a moment. Will we step away from our own desire to, to find joy in places other than Him? Will we look at our things, our resources, our lives? And will we see what Scripture says to us about becoming like Him in death in immersing ourselves in the hope of the resurrection Lord would we be people who would not just know this in our heads but Lord would you teach us to want all these things with our hearts 
Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for these people. If there are those here who do not know you, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. If, for those who do know you, I pray that you would help them to find their identity in you and only you. We ask it in Christ's name.